I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got a little bit of a rarity for me, somebody who actually lives in the same city that I do, uh, Britt Messer with me. Britt, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. It's Friday, beautiful summer. So I appreciate you carving out time on a Friday afternoon, but I'm excited for this one because you've recently moved into my backyard, our market. I want to talk about that strategic shift, but before we get into it, if you could give a little bit of background on yourself and the firm and we can go from there. Sure. Well, as you said, I just recently joined Southeastern Trust Company and kicked off our uh, Nashville office earlier this year. Our company has been around as an independent uh, trust company and private wealth boutique manager since 2018, but actually our history dates back into the early um, 2010s. Our uh, leadership team was part of the trust department at FSG Bank down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when that bank merged with Atlantic Capital in Atlanta, that team stayed on with the new merged bank. But at a point in time after the merger, the bank leadership decided that it made sense for them to basically spin off their wealth management business because they were a legacy commercial bank, a really corporate bank. And uh, the leaders of, of, of what became Southeastern Trust Company bought the business and spun us off as an independent. So we're based in Chattanooga, but we've got teammates in Atlanta. And now we've got myself and trust officer here in Nashville. So we're really excited to be part of the community and to really you know, build our brand in this you know, really thriving market. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, Nashville, obviously going gangbusters, but still, in my opinion, lagging in the financial services space in a lot of ways. There, there aren't a lot of options to for folks to have kind of institutional level asset management 
and wealth management. So welcome you with open arms here. I've got some specific questions about kind of the direction of the firm and what you're advising clients. But before we do that, could you give a little bit of background on yourself to give some context and perspective? Sure. I've been in the industry now for about 20 years. Uh, I spent um, all my career with SunTrust, which later became Truist Bank, in their private wealth management um, division, primarily as a portfolio manager uh, for high net worth clients. Um, I did have some relationships on the endowments and foundation side as well. But most of my uh, business and practice was in you know, advising and managing portfolios for high net worth individuals and trust. So at Southeastern Trust, my role is as chief investment officer. So I lead a team of portfolio managers and analysts that help devise and build portfolios for our clients. And trying to figure out these markets right now with a very volatile year that we've been through, it's posing an interesting uh, dilemma in terms of, as you uh, talked about with me in the past, uh, risk and return and trying to balance out, you know, where to find opportunities right now in the marketplace. So I do want to get into that, but before, obviously the chance to be the chief investment officer, a huge opportunity for you personally and developmentally, but what was it like going from what is kind of a large bulge bracket you know, in a lot of ways, pretty, you know, corporate style organization to you tell me, but what, what seems and feels like a much more boutique wealth management setup. What was that transition transition been like and, and what motivated you to make that move? Yeah. Well, you know, having uh, been at, at my prior firm for, for a long time, I went through a number of transitions with the wealth management model. And it's not just at any one bank or any one firm. I think the industry is constantly evolving and changing. And with especially technology, you just have rapid change right now in terms of how clients want to engage with their advisors. So I came up in the business really as uh, more of a generalist in terms of really embracing the diversification of the investment world. You know, when I started with, with SunTrust 20 years ago, as you might imagine, it was a world of large cap equities. It was uh, municipal bonds, treasury bonds, more of your bread and butter portfolio management tools. And as I've you know, seen the industry evolve, you know, we're looking at, of course, the global equity market, not just within equities, but within fixed income and within alternative asset classes. So I really have tried to take the best of, of what I think is out there in terms of solution sets and embracing the, the need to find the best tools to build portfolios today. Because I think in these challenging markets, you, you don't and you can't be successful just using the tools of 20 and 30 years ago. So trying to bring on the investment side, those ideas to client portfolios, and then still bringing an advisory approach though, that is more boutique family office-like, you know, with the volatility of larger firms, they're moving, you know, generally up market, they're moving to, you know, different models in terms of how they're functioning as a team, how they're functioning as individual advisors. And our approach at Southeastern Trust is really to maintain a little bit of that old-fashioned team feel in terms of how we relate with clients. So every client's different. You may uh, engage more on the investment side or on the estate and, and trust side with, with this particular advisor, but we still want to leverage our team and our resources to provide you with an experience that feels like a traditional type of firm rather than one that is constantly um, changing their approach and changing the way that they you know work with clients in, in terms of their, their skill sets. Yeah, I completely agree. What I've seen in the industry 
and I'm not asking you to be disparaging towards your former firms, but there are larger groups that are really struggling, in my opinion, to provide the value that individuals and families want right now. And it's my belief and what I've seen in the marketplace, the groups that do well really focus on access to alternatives and niche strategies, right? That the larger groups have trouble just managing because they're they're allocating so much capital. And two, that more concierge service like approach where it's not just investment management, it's everything from trust and estates work to education, generational transition, tax planning, holistic kind of financial planning from soup to nuts. And that's where groups like yourselves, I think, can really have a value add and differentiate yourselves in the marketplace from these other larger groups. Is, have you experienced that yourself since you've been with Southeastern Trust? Yes. And when we talk about our value proposition, as you said, we, we want to bring all of the the depth of, of ideas and, and solutions to clients, uh, whether it's on the investment side or the planning side. Just think about what's going on right now in the political realm with discussion about tax law changes and state changes potentially. You know, we want to be mindful of those potential changes and how they're going to impact our clients. And it likely will continue to impact their investments as well. So it's an ongoing conversation. I have a lot of dialogue with our trust advisors and, and teammates on how we can best collectively position ideas for clients. And, and I really value that collaboration and that, that approach to relationship management because e- even generalists can't be an expert in everything. And so, you know, our investment team is, is certainly focused on our core competency, but we, we recognize that we need that, this breadth of resources. And we, we think our model really is, is a great uh, way to deliver those solutions and to, to clients that may, may uh, not be able to get that type of, of experience at some of the, you know, the larger firms today. So I should have covered this in the pre-call, but are you all organized as a Tennessee trust company? We are. We are state okay. chartered. And um, we, yeah, so we, we are actually reviewed by the Tennessee auditors and we just went through that recently. So I'm getting familiar with how that works. And, you know, Tennessee is one of the, the top states in the country for trust laws and flexibility. So even though we, we are based here, we've got a lot of clients outside of Tennessee. So I think they've seen the benefits of um, leveraging Tennessee trust law to, for their own personal situations and planning. And it's always incredible to me, people don't often ask, you know, when they're talking to a wealth manager, wealth manager, asset manager, you know, how are you all organized, right? Are you, are you a broker dealer? Are you an RIA? Are you a hybrid? Are you a trust company? Because those things really do matter and make a difference. And I really like the trust company model because you're a, you're a true fiduciary, you know, you're tightly regulated by a monitoring agency that isn't overwhelmed with with necessarily the 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 level that SEC and Finra is, in my opinion. So, how has that been in terms of your ability to serve clients making that transition? Yeah, well, I, I spent most of my career working primarily with trust clients, although I did have uh, a stint working on on the brokerage side as well. So, I've I've seen both sides of it. And for the client, you want to make the experience seamless. You don't want to make it feel like they're choosing either or and right or wrong. But I agree with you that the trust model brings a certain, I, I think, degree of comfort to some clients that 
there's been a lot of discussion over recent years around the word fiduciary and what that means and what parts of the industry meet that standard or what it even is. But our side of the business has that legacy of already being known as a fiduciary and putting client's interests first. And so I think that that does give us a degree of uh, comfort and credibility with our clients and our prospects that we are going to put their interests first and we have a certain stability and oversight you know, within our industry that we, we are, you know, closely reviewed and regulated and, and we put compliance at the heart of everything we do. I mean, we are weekly and monthly talking uh, with each other about uh, annual reviews of, of our clients and making sure that documentation and that portfolios are being managed properly, you know, in accordance with the provisions of the trust or the provisions of their investment policy. So all along those lines, and you alluded to this, and I've certainly seen it, a lot of family offices are relocating, maybe not their residency or situs, but certainly their trust work to Tennessee because some of the laws that have been modified recently have allowed great flexibility here. Can you maybe peel the onion back a little bit more when you say words like flexibility and you know accessibility? What does it mean in practice and why should families be aware of what's happening here in Tennessee? Yeah, well, Tennessee has, I think, very generous provisions for, for ways that trust can be administered or established in terms of embracing the Uniform Trust Code, which means that if you have a trust document that is, is an older trust or maybe written in a wonky way for, for you know, modern investment management or, or administration of the trust, that you can, you know, utilize common, you know, widely accepted provisions and practices to have the, the trust be modified or adjusted to meet those needs. And for instance, one that really came into practice a lot in the last 10 years, and I've, I've utilized it with many clients, is the, the Unitrust provisions where if you have a trust that stipulated income-only distributions to a beneficiary, for instance, that you can establish the trust as a total return vehicle, set it in a growth-oriented or more growth-oriented investment policy, and then pay out a fixed percentage of the assets every year, rather than chase yield or only own dividend-paying companies or stocks that um, really is going to concentrate and probably add risk to the portfolio and the environment that we're in right now. Yeah, I, I've seen that and we've been advised similarly. So I'm glad to hear that you're having that conversation as well internally. Let's let's pivot towards <laughs> very challenging times, right? This past year, we're recording this in, in June with COVID, difficult year, but but oddly very positive year in the market. Although we've seen a lot of volatility recently. What are you advising? And I'm not asking for advice here, but <laughs> high level, what are you advising people and how are you thinking through some of these asset allocation decisions, considering where the public markets are, where fixed income is, and potentially what this you know tax change might be in store under the Biden administration? Yeah, all, all great questions. As, as I mentioned earlier, I think it is a very challenging time, which it, you know, to some clients and observers, that may seem, seem an odd statement because of the strength of the markets that we've been in. But as a manager, we're always looking forward. I, I love to use that, that Wayne Gretzky saying, of you, you've got to skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where the puck is. And I think that we are likely in some sort of inflection point right now in the market where we're sorting out you know, where we're going from a 
economic cycle, from a leadership cycle in the markets, you know, and then you've got Washington and the Fed really at the heart of everything. Uh, I think the, the central banks um, have done a, a solid job of getting us through the pandemic, but now that we have certainly come off of the lows and improved, you know, our economic momentum and, and arguably we're, we're in a near peak, if not peak growth cycle, how do you begin to pare back that support without deflating asset prices and, and causing more harm than good? And that's really at the heart, I think, of everybody's uh, thought process right now is, is how is that going to happen and how is that going to impact the markets? And at our firm, when I joined last fall, we um, really looked hard at our portfolio construction and saw an opportunity in the value side of the, the investment style. So coming out of the pandemic, as, as many observers know, you know, growth style stocks, tech stocks particularly dominated the market through most of last year. But in the fourth quarter and, and certainly after the election with the way that the political leadership was going to play out, I think the market forecast that we would have continued strong fiscal support with uh, the president and Congress. And that really lifted the value side of the market significantly through the end of last year and through most of this year. So we still like value. Fundamentally, it's uh, not nearly as cheap as it was. But in this market, I think it's key to look at everything on a relative basis. And certainly we think that value stocks generally look fundamentally cheaper right now and relatively more attractive than, than growth. So we're leaning into the value side of, of our portfolios. But we still have growth because it's very hard. And in my experience, it's very rare to get out of a sector of the market when it has such strong earnings and economic momentum. And certainly it's hard to argue that tech and that growth stocks, many of them, except for the more speculative names, the SPACs, the IPO types, um, they still have great earnings momentum right now. So, well, we, we're, we're leaning value, but we're not uh, certainly all in on, on the value side of the market right now. And what's your stance on, on fixed income bond portfolios? Yeah, that's also been a very interesting period to look at in, in the last year in that you've had, you know, just a complete collapse in interest rates until really, again, the fourth quarter of last year. In our portfolios, we have not made big duration bets. We have a slightly modest duration relative to our benchmarks. Something that we're looking at closely, though, is inflation-protected securities, whether it's on the municipal side or in taxable bonds. We still think even though those bonds have had a strong run in the last few months that inflation and those concerns are not going away, even though the Fed is on pause for, for the foreseeable future. We still want to have an inflation protected element in the portfolios. And municipal bonds are interesting, too, in that I think a lot of the, the that market was pricing in a significant tax increase this year, especially in the higher brackets. And What's interesting is we're having this conversation is that Washington has said they've come out with an infrastructure package and the pay-fors really don't include a lot of headline tax increases. So munis look fairly priced, if not a little expensive right now relative to history. So even for our clients that are in higher tax brackets, putting in those inflation-protected treasuries or putting in some niche fixed income, maybe even some non-dollar denominated bonds. That's another topic I'd be happy to talk about with you as well. We are somewhat bearish on the dollar, even though it's had a little bit of a rally recently with the Fed. I, I just think with the continued fiscal spending that's on the horizon and combined with the fact that the rest of the world is likely to continue to 
pick up the pace of recovery from COVID. I do think that the dollar could be under some stress later this year and into 22. So we, we want to have some non-dollar denominated both bonds and equities in our portfolios. So help me out here. What does that mean? <laughs> what is it was non-dollar denominated? Yeah. Well, yeah. on the on the fixed income side, we have some exposure currently in emerging market local currency debt. We see that as an area where you have reasonably good yield and you're picking up some currency diversification in those markets. And then of course on the, the equity side, you know, having international equities, whether it's ADRs or local currency equities, we, we feel like that with the, the potential weakness of the dollar that you're going to get you know, lift in currency translation returns on top of the earnings growth. Another theme that plays out for us with the international markets is that they inherently are more value-oriented than the U.S. You know, the U.S. is effectively a growth market by nature of the fact that our top companies are all tech stocks now. So owning international equities, you, you sort of imply a little bit of a value bias when you go out and buy an index fund, or even if you buy an active manager, they're going to tend to have more of a value uh, mix in their portfolio than you would in the U.S. And, and how do you think about private equity alternatives real estate. I know that's kind of a, a big tent term, but obviously I think the days of the 60-40 portfolio are going away and, and every allocation is going to be different tactically based on the individual and the family and the circumstances, but big picture, how do you think about that space right now? Yeah, well, we we certainly embrace it with clients that their risk and return profile and also their their investment needs fit for for those asset classes. In the alternative space, and this or fits in with my comments earlier about inflation, we're a believer in having some momentum-oriented strategies or, or trend-following strategies, particularly on the commodity side. We've looked at, at different models and, and research that shows that those strategies tend to do well in an inflationary environment. You've seen recently with owning just long-only commodities, you can do very well, but when they, they turn, you know, you, if you're long only, you can potentially get whipsawed sometimes with, with if you're in the wrong sector at the wrong time. But with those managed strategies or, or you know, more momentum oriented strategies, you can somewhat hedge your risk a little bit with their approach to commodity and currency management. On the private side, both private equity and debt, I think that back to my comments about relative valuation and relative return, we have a realistic view of private equity. I think we, we get a little cautious and heartburned when we see uh, IRR projections of 20-25%. I think in the environment that we're in right now, we're more sanguine about our expectations for this decade in terms of, of equity returns in general. But I think one thing that has proven out and it shows in the results and shows in the numbers is that solid private managers still tend to outperform and provide an alpha over public equities over the life cycle of their funds. So I look at some of the managers that I've used or, or reviewed that have history back to the, the 1999 tech bubble or the Great Recession. And if you were a, a disciplined, steady investor and, and rode out the storm, basically, your returns, yeah, you may not have gotten a 15 or 20% annualized return on your, your fund, but you still had a, a significant alpha over the public market. So to me, that makes the argument that even in volatile times and in times where you're sort of a little queasy about valuations, that you still need to look at private strategies as part of your portfolio. And, and I think the key to what you said there was if you stay disciplined and consistent, <laughs> which... 
you know, as humans, emotional animals with a scoreboard every day, unfortunately, very challenging. How much of your job is telling people not to do anything? Yeah, oh, uh, it, it's it's a big part. And I have watched a lot more financial media in the last year during the pandemic. And it, it really is uh, eye-opening to me the way that the media tend, has tended to uh, make investing be like uh, a, a gamification event or a, a gambling event where the weekly, the monthly returns are a report card of your success or failure. And, you know, I, I have my CFA designation and I remember those studies and talking about equity results. And to be an equity investor, in my view anyway, you really have to be in the market for at least three to seven years to properly have time to evaluate the success of a, of a core holding, of a, of a holding that's not a trade. And, and we certainly don't trade a lot in portfolios. We may use active managers that may take opportunities at the, at the individual stock level. But if you have a client with a, a growth portfolio or a balanced portfolio or even of value equities or international equities, those are going to be you know, core holdings that they're going to want to be in for years. And so we, we try not to get wrapped up in the quarterly and the even the annual horse race of what was in and what was out and remind clients that with mean reversion, even if you're trying to forget about the technicals or forget about the fundamentals, just a simple rebalance of a portfolio has tended to add 1% a year or more annually to your return over time. So we are long-term investors. We do look at short-term trends. I don't want to discount that. Certainly the breadth of the market right now, even at these valuations, it's very hard to step out and say, we think this is the time to get out because the market is so broadly technically strong at this moment and the economy is so strong. But we have our I would use the analogy of we've got our finger on the trigger that we may want to pair back exposure sooner rather than later if we start to see trend shifts. So that's where we we want to lean into those those moves. We, we're not a you know certainly not a market timer. We're not trying to get in and out of markets. So begs the question. I don't want to be reductive. But do you think things like NFTs and Robinhood are positive because there's more market participants that are learning or are they negative because they're gamifying what should be a long-term investment approach and essentially making retail investors traders who are going to get burned? Yeah, I I don't want to have a cop-out answer, but I think it's some of both. I came into the business in the late 90s and early 2000s during the the tech bubble and the the tech renaissance of that period. And it was really the onset of online investing and and online trading, maybe at a more simplified view than it is today. But I I think that that experience is beneficial. I, I never think education is a bad thing in the long run for investors. And I think getting people involved in the conversation and involved in debates is important for them to become long-term successful investors. The danger that I see is the, the, the feel that you have to participate in these certain meme names or you know, certain parts of the market to have your chops in terms of being uh, a, a modern day investor or a modern day Robinhood investor. And I, I think that there's a danger there that eventually 
this is not going to end well for some investors, some some participants, and you don't want them to completely throw in the towel. I remember a few conversations I had with um, with younger clients after 2008-9, where they told me for years they were just out of the market. They were so burned and just beaten up by what happened that they just said, this isn't for me. And, and you don't want that to happen because in the long run, you know, those are the times you need to be disciplined. Going back to that word again, you need to, you need to understand the value and the, 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 you really need to develop a stomach and a good feeling to buy when things are not going well. And it really has been pretty easy for most investors since last March. So they're going to need to learn either through education, through experience, what it's like to have a bear market or bad outcomes and how to deal with it. Because everybody at some point in their investing life is going to deal with those situations. Do you think it's incumbent on people like you in your position to now track Reddit and meme stocks? I think that we have to be conversant in those parts of the market to explain to clients and to people that want to know about our philosophy and our process, why we don't participate or maybe why we're, we're on the sidelines right now, even if we may in the future, you know, even with something like, like crypto, you know, it's a relatively new asset class and, you know, it's something that we, we just don't have a lot of evidence about how to value it. Everyone seems to be developing their own methodology for that, but for assets that don't produce income, whether it's uh, crypto or whether it's uh, a meme stock that is trying to clean up their balance sheet after COVID, those are parts of, of the investment world that rarely fit the lens for our clients. We, we have clients that are still growing wealth and building wealth, and we want to help them do that in a successful way, but with proven strategies that we can measure and that we can evaluate. With a lot of these parts of the market, it's really hard to be able to make a case, an investment thesis, why you would want to own them, unless it's the greater fool theory that you just think that others are going to get in behind you and keep lifting the price. Yeah, crypto in particular is fascinating to me. And, and I've had a lot of people on the podcast, we've done webinars, I, I try to read up on it. And I understand conceptually, it could be a store of value, but until it's a medium of exchange, I think it's really difficult for me to envision, to understand, I guess, the value proposition there, but maybe I'm just not smart enough. I mean, what do you advise folks about crypto? Do you have any exposure to the crypto space through various managers or other means? We've had a lot of questions about it. We, we don't have any direct exposure with investments that we've recommended. We've looked via some clients and co-trustees that have been interested in it at some ideas in that space, funds that have exposure. You know, I, I think that you you want to advise clients with those types of investments that you have to be comfortable that this is on a, a spectrum of your portfolio. This is the most aggressive speculative segment. And it's fine to have exposure in those assets, knowing though that your your outcomes can can basically go to zero. So, you know, it's money that you're willing to lose. It's money that you have to really say, this is something that I want to be in for a long period of time, especially with something like crypto to see how it plays out in terms of the use of blockchain, the use of the technology. There's so many coins right now. It's very hard for me with all the other parts of the market that I try and follow to figure out who the winners and losers are going to be and what is the actual tangible value of that that uh, 
that asset to the to the industry or to the economy. But I, I think you you tell clients that this is money that clearly doesn't pay a dividend. It's not going to give you income, which you could say that about something like gold too. But you know, a commodity has had a long history of a store value, the way its relationship plays out to different economic events. And we just don't have that history yet with things like crypto, where we can use history as a guide to say, yes, we can prove via statistics and correlations that this this asset class is going to provide an element of, of risk-adjusted value to your returns. I think that's the right answer. I'm not, I'm not just saying this to pump your tires, but I think that's the right answer. It's about allocation, right? I mean, Bill Miller has, you know, he's a crypto person and his response is always, well, I think it's defensible that it's one or two or 3% of your liquidity, right? I mean, and that's going to have a different dollar figure assigned to it based on who you are. And I, I think that's justifiable as long as you put it in the right context, um, like anything else. How much harder is your job today than people who did your gig 50 years ago, having to track all these different asset classes and strategies and this proliferation of of you know alternatives and access to private equity now that a lot of individuals and families have. Yeah, it, it's more complex for sure. I, I like to think it's more fun because uh, I, I feel like I'm always learning. You know, you never arrive, even as a professional investor. You, you wake up every day and you're always learning something new. I, I actually thought about going into politics in college, and to me, that had an element of you, you zig, you zag, you go left, you go right, and everybody just tries to meet in the middle. But with investing, there there is a forward-looking outcome that is likely to be very positive for you. You, you even talk to somebody like Buffett, and in the, the depths of the Depression, he talked about the, the wealth that someone could have created over the last 90 years if they had stayed in the market throughout his life cycle. So there's an excitement there that there are always going to be changes in the economy, innovations, new investment ideas. Certainly, the U.S. is the most innovative economy in the world right now, and we, we want to find those opportunities for our clients in their investment portfolios, whether it's on the private or the public side. But the the CFA in me and the portfolio manager, manager in me, I still have that fundamental bent that I, I want to pay the right price to get the right return. Because you want to look back in, in, in five and 10 years and say, I paid a fair price for this investment to generate this outcome. And I agree with, with Buffett that, yeah, it's it's great. You, you want to pay a fair price or even a, a fully valued price for a great company versus a, 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 a great or a poor price for a cheap company, but, or a, a cheap price for a poor company, I should say. But at the same time, in the market right now, with so many variables that are affecting valuation and price discovery, we're a little concerned about the way the central bank's effects on the market are prohibiting that in a sense. And we're cautious about paying the right price um, to get our clients a fair return on their money. Does does debt matter anymore? Does the does the federal deficit per percent to GDP, all the metrics you could throw out there? I mean, are you a uh... A modern monetary theory kind of guy, or or how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that that to me is going to be one of the key questions of the decade. I think is how is this all going to play out? And in some ways, it, we are still 
dealing with some of the after effects of 2008 and 9 because the the Fed has really never fully pulled back the reins from their support during that decade. I mean, you can just go back to 2013 and the taper tantrum or 2018 and the Powell's, you know, his pivot on on rates where the market fell 20% in a few weeks. And, and the market really has no tolerance for normalization in terms of monetary policy. So how long can this ride last? And I, I think that there will be a, a reckoning. I, I'm not clear yet on whether I think it's going to manifest itself in the inflation worries that everybody's talking about. I think a more likely and, you know, unfortunately unattractive outcome is that we're going to have a growth style over the next few decades that would approximate Japan in the 90s and 2000s. Now, the the things that would likely um, be positives for us over Japan is I think we've got a more innovative tech-oriented economy. We've got, you know, uh, population support through immigration, but our population, our naturalized population is growing older, is, is aging. So I do have some concerns that over the long run, GDP does tend to move with population growth and our population growth is slowing. So that's something that I do worry about that if we don't have the growth and these deficits build, even if interest rates are low, we're going to box ourselves in a corner in terms of having to cut entitlements or make, you know, un, uh, unhappy, unwelcome changes to our budget to make ends meet. And, and that's going to depress growth even further. Okay. I, I think I've asked you enough hard questions. <laughs> Sorry. It's fun though. I mean, this is fascinating to me to hear you, how you think through this. I've got some, a few more here. How do you curate your information intake on a daily basis? Yeah, it's a a great question. It it really um, isn't a consistent practice. I I think I I wake up every day and hit the phone and hit the, the, the laptop and the TV to just hit the headlines and figure out what's going on in the world. We have a, a plethora of research at our firm that we receive from professional analysts and researchers. So there's an element of that that, that we try to look at every day to make sure that we're familiar with the impacts of, say, economic data. Certainly, everybody's keen in on inflation right now, but there are so many other elements of data related to, to jobs and to manufacturing and services that are key to look at in terms of how that that gumbo of data is going to be interpreted by the market and affect our, our growth rate and that that question about peak growth. We, we tend to be a top-down firm in that we we try to figure out the macro view and, and try and position portfolios at the highest level in the right way. And then we want to let the experts do what they do well. So while we do have a few proprietary strategies, we're big believers in using uh, managers that have an academic orientation to the markets. And you can find great managers that are active and stock pickers and, and have that bent. But we, we also like using managers that have an orientation to proven strategies that have worked over time, whether it's rebalancing a a value tilt, a small cap tilt. So those types of approaches to us make a lot of sense. And being mindful of shifts in the market because tactics go in and out of favor. And we do tactically try and rebalance our portfolios at least uh, once or twice a year, depending on conditions. So even if we don't have a tactical change in the market, if you think about what's happened in the last year, I remember 
in March of 2020 rebalancing portfolios because they were five or 10% out of line with their objectives and how much value that added over the next 15 months with the market rallying here close to 100% since then. So um, just kind of sticking to our knitting and, and making sure that we're, we're doing the easy things right or the easier things and then trying to not get too in the weeds on the more complex elements, but letting letting experts and active managers do that well. What do you What are you reading right now? Or, or what have you read that's been good lately? What should I put on my beach list? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff on um, like realclearmarkets.com. I find has a great list of diverse views and opinions on the market on a mm-hmm. daily, weekly basis. So I sort of scan those headlines and read interesting things there. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading Ray Dalio's new book that's coming out later this year. I, I think that listening to some of the veterans that have been in the market since the 70s and 80s, and they've been through some extreme conditions before, it's good to have those perspectives at this time because, you know, I, I, I still feel like I'm a relative newcomer to the business, even though I've been around a while. But I, I look around and, and I work with people that have never lived through even 2008, 2009. So having that humble um, perspective that you are going to see more bear markets, you're going to see more volatility. It's really how you react to it and it's how you, you adjust to those situations and, and prepare because n- no one no, you know, can fully prepare for bear markets because if you did, if you knew what was coming, you would have gotten out or, or planned in advance. But it's really how you, how you handle the storm really and prepare for that that's important. So uh, I've been reading just a lot of, of stuff in the journal recently, the Wall Street Journal, about obser- economists and observers who are, you know, concerned about, about the central bank activity and kind of how, how they see things playing out in the next few years and what you need to be doing to deal with that. I went to Duke University and we have a great business school professor there, Campbell Harvey, that has written some great papers on inflation and how to deal with inflation and invest in an inflationary environment. So that's something that's kind of fascinating me right now in terms of how we're going to potentially deal with that black swan event if, if we don't have the transitory outcome that has been bandied about so much. So along those lines, and we're bumping up against an hour here, I'm sorry, but, but this has been really good. How worried are you about inflation? I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. the stagflation scenario of Japan. You know, nobody wants that. I personally think the Fed is terrified of deflation and they're going to they're going to err on the side of inflation because they, they think they can manage it better. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a tough call because I look at, at our, our growth rate right now and, and how quickly the economy is growing and you know different projections you know run between high single digits to you know low mid teens. Even if we've got three or four or five percent inflation right now, you're you're looking at a, a very strong positive real growth rate relative to our, our history especially the last 10, 15 years. And the, the argument that I would make for inflation, and, and this isn't with pound the table conviction, but just something I'm watching, is that even though the Fed is still buying bonds and you know doing their $120 billion a month, the money supply growth rate is slowing. You know, the money, the, if you look at the chart of the Fed balance sheet since last year, you had this huge spike in March and, and in the spring. And then since then, it's sort of leveled off. And so my, my view is that if we continue to grow at this rate and you have the bull market thesis, you have growth as far as we can see, great 
top and bottom line results, that at some point that growth is going to manifest itself and bump up against the, the lower money supply growth and have at least temporary inflation that isn't transitory. So that, that's my concern. Now, long-term, long run, and that's, that's something that does um, concern me as well, like you, that you look at the 10-year treasury and the 30-year treasury and you would think, hey, if we're having rampant inflation, why, why isn't that higher? And, and maybe what the market is saying is that we're going to have, the, the party's going to last a few years longer until the stimulus money runs out. And then we're going to have a deflationary crash at some point when we don't have any backstop in terms of more fiscal spending and the Fed has done all it can do. So I, I think it may be a play in two acts. I think we, we are concerned about higher than expected inflation over the next year or two. But longer term, I, I think those things we talked about earlier around long-term growth metrics of the U.S., population growth, this low interest rate environment the Fed has, has fostered, I, I think it, it does pose longer term risk to deflation. Good friend of mine, uh, another fellow Duke grad, Wall Street guy, always tells me that the bond investor is always smarter than the stock people. So, you know, I'll just kind of leave that comment out there. What do you do for fun? What do you, what do you do on the weekends when you're not, you know, prognosticating about the market with people like me? Yeah, you know, being being a Duke uh, alum, uh, I'm really excited to be going back and seeing some of our basketball team this year again post COVID. Our our coach is retiring after an illustrious uh 45 year career. So I'm excited to get to some, some blue double basketball games and support them in his final season. And then see our new coach, John Shire, once he starts the following year, our office here is, uh, is in West end and I live not very far at all from the office. So I'm actually got out this morning and enjoyed, uh, Centennial park. It's almost reopened. They've taken the fences up. So getting out the fresh air and a lot of folks out and about, so just kind of appreciating the beauty of, of Nashville and, and this community and enjoying this, this great weather we've had and, um, you know, getting some exercise and some, some time away to kind of clear my head from all these, these market uh, conundrums that we deal with every day. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Britt, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. You know, we'll, we'll put content information in the show notes, but if somebody's listening on an airplane over the North Atlantic, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? get some of your market commentary, learn more about the firm and the offerings. Yeah, our website is sctrustco.com, which has information on our team and our, our offerings. And also we've got a number of investment pieces on there as well, including our annual outlook. And then anyone's welcome to check me out and our team out on LinkedIn. All of our teammates have profiles there. So just look me up there and feel free to connect or drop me a note if you have any questions or want to chat about the markets. Always um, interested in having some uh, conversations or debates about about these issues. Or if you just want to talk about sports or Duke basketball, I'm, I'm always up for that as well. Actually, I worked as the, uh, the scorekeeper for the men's team when I was in college. So I got to sit at Cameron for four years on the floor. So I have a lot of great memories and stories of that time in my life. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's we. I mean, Duke and UNC both losing their you know historic coaches at the same time. It feels like a big transition there. It'd be fun to see them go head to head again. And wish you the best of luck. I hope you have a great basketball season. And we'll have to do this again. See how far off we both are and what we think is going to happen here. But thank you so much for joining me. It was a great conversation. We'll have to do it again soon and, and really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for hosting me. And uh, I look forward to getting back together soon and um, keeping up uh, with you in the, in the market. So have a great weekend. 
Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.